But so this is 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 through 26. Friends, listen. This is God's word. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. This is God's word. So this passage is going to teach us how we're, we're to respond to opposition and conflict in our lives. Right? And we've seen this beginning in verse 14, so we've been looking at this for a few weeks. And here's what we've seen so far. We've seen from these verses that in responding to opposition, in responding to conflict when it comes, either in close relationship or with people you don't even know, when opposition comes, you need to first discern the real issue and focus on the real issues. Right? Don't get distracted by stuff that doesn't matter. Second, you need to repent of what you've done. Figure out how have I contributed to this conflict, to this opposition. Own that. Repent of it. And then third, we saw this last week, you need to pursue community. You don't, you don't, you don't do this alone. This is difficult. This is challenging. It's hard to respond to opposition in this way. There's a huge part of us that rails against responding like this. There's a huge part of us that gets defensive, that gets angry, that gets um, vigilant. And so we need to pursue community while we're trying to respond this way because we can't do this by ourselves. Now, our goal in responding to conflict and opposition, our goal is to honor God, right? Our goal is to respond like Jesus would. And with regard to the person or the people that we're in opposition with, well, what's our goal there, right? What's our goal with the person that we're in conflict with? And how do we know whether or not we've accomplished our goal? I want to share with you a short video. It's about 90 seconds. And it just illustrates the fact that it's not always easy to know what is our goal or our responsibility in opposition. Okay? We don't always know exactly what the right thing is. So let's watch this. really hard. It is. I 
Can I get an amen? Amen. (sighs) What's our goal, right, in conflict? Is it to be right? Is it, I mean, right, how do you, is is it really, is it not about the nail? Is it about the nail? Is it, I mean, what do you do? Right? When you're in opposition, is your goal to convince the other person that they're wrong? Is it just to understand and not say anything? Right? How do you know? Is our goal to address the opposition in a way where, like, we might not convince them of anything, but anybody else who's watching or that we can tell about will know that we're right? Right? I mean, what's our goal here? Um, is our goal to defend the truth? Is our goal to make the opposition, whoever we're in conflict with, like us again? Is our goal to smooth things over so that the opposition goes away and we just avoid talking about things that we can argue about in the future? Right? What is our goal? Or is our goal reconciliation? Right? Where we come to a mutual understanding of each other so that we represent each other accurately. We articulate our differences clearly but charitably. Or is our goal to just convince other people to become Christians? Right? To help them see that in the midst of the opposition, that Jesus' ways are best and wisest and most loving. When you respond as Jesus would, does that mean you always have to share the gospel in the opposition, no matter what you're talking about? Right? Should our goal be to show others that all opposition has an opportunity to see Jesus' opinion and that we should just follow him? Right? Some of these things sound like great goals, and some of them, frankly, sound like stupid goals. Um, but even with the good goals, are we responsible to make these things happen? Right? That's the goal. We might have a goal, but are we responsible completely to fulfill those things? I think there's a difference between our goals and our responsibility, isn't there? Like, there's something that we might be aiming for, but are we responsible completely to see that it comes about? Are there things in opposition that are out of our control? I think the answer is yes. I think the answer is yes. What is our role when we respond to opposition? I think this is the question of boundaries. The question of boundaries. And um, Henry Cloud and John Townsend have written a book called Boundaries, which does a great job of helping people to think through um, what they're responsible for, what they're not. We're going to delve into that because this passage, I think, helps frame out for us what boundaries are for us. In opposition, what are we responsible for versus what is God's job? That's what these verses are going to clarify for us. And so in this paragraph of verses, verses 23 to 26, Paul is going to tell us something very simple. Okay, and here it is. This is the bottom line. This is the blanks in your handout there, the first blank. Paul says, you give them Jesus and let God give them repentance. That's a summary of these verses. You give them Jesus and let God give them repentance. So Paul's going to warn us first and then he's going to unpack the boundaries that show what our role is versus what God's is. And so first, Paul says, avoid the trap of arguments of ignorance. Okay? Avoid the trap of arguments of ignorance. Verse 23 He says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. So if you've been with us for the last few weeks, this is now becoming a steady refrain in Paul. 
right? In verse 14, Paul said, remind them of these things, charge them before God, not to quarrel about words. Okay, then verse 16, he says, avoid irreverent babble. Verse 22, he says, flee youthful passions. And now he says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. So Paul's saying here that there are certain types of arguments and conflicts that we simply need to avoid. We simply need to avoid these things. And this is a really wonderful word picture. Um, The word avoid here, or I'm sorry, the word have nothing to do with in verse 23. This phrase is a single word in Greek. It's the word avoid. Um, But it was used, get this picture. It was used to describe what some wrestlers would do when they were about to wrestle with someone and he's taking off his garments, right? He's getting ready to wrestle, and he's taking off his robes because he's, you know, he's, he's stripping down to, to wrestle. And they take one look at his massive physique, and they walk away. So, like, they see who he is, they see how strong he is, and this word, the same word was used for these other people that are getting ready to wrestle, and they literally walk away. They avoid. They have nothing to do with this wrestling match. You with me? Right, if you're going to fight somebody and all of a sudden they're twice as big as you, five times as strong as you, look like they can crush you like a twig, wisdom would say better he who fights and runs away lives to fight another day, right? Um, and so it's the same kind of thing that Paul is saying here. He's saying, look, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies, okay? And I don't get the impression that what Paul is saying here is that they're too strong for you that you can't overcome them. But I think what Paul is saying here is that this is a tar baby. These things are tar babies, meaning there is no way that you can get involved in this without getting tangled up and twisted and stuck. So he's saying have nothing to do with ignorant, arguments of ignorance. Okay? And so that's the picture here. And, I, and when I think about this, ignorance, I think, plagues us in a couple of, in a couple of ways. Um, sometimes arguments of ignorance reflect that we shouldn't be arguing about this. Like, this is not worth arguing about. There is no good that's going to come from arguing about this. If you share your opinion and you get stuck wrestling with this person, you're just going to end up a tarry, sticky mess. No one's listening. No one cares. And so there's ignorance in pursuing some kinds of arguments. Okay? But then the other thing, other times, I think arguments of ignorance reflect that either we or the person that we're arguing with is ignorant of the facts. Okay? So we're having an argument. We're having a, maybe a discussion even. But either he, she, or me, like neither one of us know what we're talking about. Like neither one of us have all the information that we would need to have in order to have a real position on the issue. Okay? I think a lot of political discussion ends up in these arguments of ignorance, okay? There are some things that we can have a pretty sure opinion on, but there are a lot of things where, frankly, we just don't know enough. We don't have anywhere near the amount of information that we would need to have to make a really reasonable judgment of what we should do or to evaluate what either side of the political aisle has done, okay? And I think a lot of times we speak, and we might have 10% of the facts that we would need to have if we were in the position to actually make the decision. Are you with me? And so we want to avoid, we want to have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Okay, now this doesn't mean that you should be discouraged to evaluate and think through big issues. 
Okay? There's nothing wrong with saying, look, based on the information that I have, and here's the information that I have, I think this is the right thing to do, or I think this was the wrong thing to do, right? I'm, so I'm not discouraging that, but when you have a healthy sense that I might not know all the facts here, that gives you a humility that will actually better enable you to respond to opposition well. And we'll talk more about that here in just a sec. Um, so Paul is saying pretty simply, look, just avoid arguments of ignorance. Okay, if ignorance is prevailing, like just avoid it. Don't go near it. Don't get stuck. Better to just keep a distance. Okay, so avoid those arguments. And then the second point here, though, is you give them Jesus. You give them Jesus. This is verses 24 uh, and 25. And I want to highlight the fact that this is not just good morality. Okay, he says, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Um, this isn't just, like, here's how to be a nice person. Okay, what Paul is saying here is, he's saying, you, Timothy, right, he's writing to Timothy, and so through Timothy, he's writing to us. He says, you give them Jesus. You give them Jesus. Okay, we know this because of what Paul calls Timothy in verse 24. Okay? He says, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to all. Okay? It's that phrase, the Lord's servant. This phrase actually comes from the prophet Isaiah. Okay? It comes from the Old Testament. Some of you have heard of the phrase, the servant songs in Isaiah. Um, in Isaiah, um, in the second half of his book, in chapters 40, really 40 through 55, Isaiah begins to talk about the deliverance of God's people. He talks about the salvation that God is going to bring to his people. They're stuck, they're uh, trapped, they're enslaved, uh, they don't know which way is up, they have oppressive government that is over them, they are far away from home, they're disconnected and disjointed as a community. And so Isaiah comes to them and he says, look, salvation is coming. Right? He gives them this good news. And the salvation that's coming is coming through the servant of the Lord. Okay, through the servant of the Lord. Um, during Christmas time, when you hear Handel's Messiah, Handel's Messiah is all filled with the prophet Isaiah's writings put to music. And so this servant of the Lord is going to come. It's, it's the Messiah. It's the, the Savior of the world who's going to come. Okay, and I just want to give you, here's one example. In Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 7, it describes this servant, the servant of the Lord, or the Lord's servant. It says, behold, this is God talking. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. I am the Lord. I have called you, now speaking to the servant, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. And so this phrase, the Lord's servant, or the servant of the Lord, is used 20 times in Isaiah 40 through 55. Sometimes it refers to the nation of Israel and what the nation of God's people are supposed to do. And then sometimes it's describing the Messiah who is to come, okay? And I need to explain a little bit this to you because you need to understand how this phrase related to Timothy and then how it relates to us. 
And so the servant of the Lord, first and foremost, it describes from God what his people were supposed to do. Okay? God is calling his people to leave their sinful ways and to take on this role and to be these people, right? Filled with his spirit, bringing forth justice to the nations, uh, establishing justice in the earth, a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, right? This is what Israel was supposed to do. God saves his people, right? He, it, the same thing happens today. He saves his people so that they would be God's agents to bring renewal to the city, to bring renewal to the world. And so Israel was called to be the servant of the Lord, and they failed. Okay? God gave all these promises, and he brought Israel back to their promised land. He brought them back into, he set them free, and their responsibility was to be these people, and they failed. So Israel, the Old Testament people of God, they saw their role as the servant of the Lord. It was like a script. Okay? These passages in Isaiah and in other places, they're like a script. And God calls Israel to be the actor, right? To be the actor on the world stage, to live in a certain way so that it would bring God's blessings and God's message to the world. And so Israel had the script, had the script. And what they did with the script, they, they saw the script, they read the script, they were excited about going back home. But once they got back home, they took the script and they chucked it. And they went back to living their own selfish ways, their own sinful ways. And I mean, here I feel like we can kind of relate, can't we? I mean, sometimes when we're in real deep trouble, we pray, God, save me, God, save me, please, God, save me. And sometimes we make all kinds of commitments. And then we pass through that time of difficulty. And then we get back and we're back on our feet. And all of a sudden, God who? Right? And so this was the story of Israel. And so Israel took the script, threw it away, and acted for her own selfish gain. Well, then Jesus comes, right? When Israel failed to be the servant of the Lord, Jesus comes as the Messiah. He comes to earth, right? And he picks up the script that was discarded, and he reads it, and he studies it for 30 years of his life. And when he turns 30, he becomes what God intended the servant of the Lord to be. He comes and he fulfills all those promises. He fulfills all those prophecies and he does everything that was written about the servant of the Lord. And he does this to bring us salvation. Like we are the ends of the earth. We're the nations that he brings justice to. And what's amazing is that when Jesus comes, his justice doesn't crush us. Right? As justice should because of our sin. But in Jesus, his justice saves us. Because before he judges us, he goes to the cross. Right? He takes our sins on himself. And so justice for us now looks like justification. Where we are declared not guilty because Jesus died for our sins. And so Jesus becomes the servant of the Lord. And then when we believe in Jesus... When you made the decision to follow Jesus, Jesus then takes the script and he hands it to you. They called the first disciples Christians because they looked like the Christ. Because they lived like the Christ. 
And so all of this helps us understand what Paul means in verse 24 when he says, the Lord's servant must be these ways. Paul's telling Timothy that in his response to opposition, his role isn't just to be right, but his role is to act as the servant of the Lord. His role is to display Jesus. Are you with me? This is his call. And so as the disciples of Jesus, as people who follow Jesus today, we are to display Jesus' character and his actions to the world so that they can see Jesus in us and through us. And so we need to not just respond the right way, but the right response is for us to give other people Jesus, both in what we say and in how we say it. That's what Paul is telling us here. And he gives details, right? He says, uh, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, right? But not be quarrelsome, but kind toward all. Okay, so if you're a Christian, you are not to be quarrelsome. You're not out looking for a fight, okay? You're not out looking for people to argue with. You're not out baiting people so that you can get into a discussion because you just heard somebody really slam the other side politically on some issue and now you want to try it out on someone else, right? When you're in a conflict, you're not just trying to convince someone that the nail needs to come out, right? You're also not just trying to convince someone that the problem isn't the nail, right? You're not just trying to be right, um, but how you say it is as important. You're not looking for a fight, but you're kind toward all. This is your disposition. There's a kindness about you. There's an openness and a welcoming spirit that you are offering to others life and joy. Right? That's what it means to be kind to all. And then he says, able to teach. Right? This is the quality also of a pastor or an elder. It makes sense because Timothy's a pastor. So he says you're able to teach. And so what this is, is that you need to be able to share the truth of the gospel when it's appropriate. Right? You need to be able to share how, the, like how Jesus thinks or feels about the situation that you're discussing, right? If, if Jesus has an opinion on it. Sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. Um, sometimes there's multiple ways that Jesus might think about an issue. But the point is that you also want to be able to talk about the difference that Jesus has made in your life. So when you respond to opposition, you want to make sure that you can let people know, look, um, I can see that you're really passionate about this. I can see that you have really strong views on this. Um, what I think would be wise is for us to take a step back and let's, let, let's talk a little bit more about, um, you know, let's just let's step back here and see if we can get at the substance here. Let's see if we can talk about what the real issues are. Okay? I want to have this discussion with you, but I'd like to do it a little bit softer, <laughs> a little bit quieter. I don't think we have to get excited because I really want to hear what you have to say and understand what you have to say and then offer you my thoughts, right? I mean, and so, um, so you want to be able to, to teach other people how to engage um, in opposition like this. Um, and then Paul says something powerful. Um, not, I mean, what he said already is powerful, but he says something that um, I don't think is possible unless you have a relationship with Jesus. Um, he says... At the end of verse 24, he says, patiently enduring evil. You see that? He says, patiently enduring evil. 
And then he says, correcting his opponents with gentleness. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. Think about this. Paul is saying that to show people Jesus, to give people Jesus in the midst of a conflict or an opposition, um, you need to patiently endure evil. So this means someone who refuses to vilify someone else because you understand where they're coming from and you understand why they think what they think. Okay? And so often I think both sides of issues fail in this, fail hopelessly. Patiently enduring evil. I think this is where we get the strongest picture of Jesus. Okay? Jesus confronted evil when he saw it. Okay? Jesus opposed people and their wrong thinking. Jesus came to people and called them to return to God and to return to God way, God's ways of thinking. But the way that Jesus corrected people while he was correcting them, he patiently endured their evil. Okay? Jesus knew that part of his calling, part of his mission in life, that he had come in part to endure evil. Right? Jesus knew that he had come to die for the sins of the world. He had come to show a love to sinners that would accept them just as they are. Okay, Jesus came for this. He knew it. This is love. This is true tolerance. Okay, this is the, the right kind of tolerance. Um, and it's the ability to do both. To care so much about people that you're willing to endure evil, and yet at the same time you're also able to correct them with gentleness. Right? I mean, this is what Jesus is calling us to. This is what Jesus did. This is what Paul is saying. If we are the Lord's servants, right? If we are servants of the Lord, followers of Jesus, uh, then this is our calling to bring these things together. In my experience, personally, like I've done this and I've seen it done, when people can get to a place where they know that the other side is evil, they believe that their responsibility ends. At the moment when I can describe the other side as being evil or morally reprehensible, then I can take the gloves off and say whatever I can to convince anybody else of just how bad what they think is. Are you with me? Have you seen this happen? I mean, this happens all the time, right? Every, it happens all the time in politics. It happens all the time with religious discussions, right? People think that they can, they just... There's no limit to what they, hey, they can say or it can be done because the end justifies the means, right? But Paul says, look what Paul says here, this phrase. He says, the Lord's servant must patiently endure evil. How can you do this? How can you do this? To patiently endure evil. Like, the picture that I have is that, I mean, patience, we understand, um, to some degree, it's, it's I mean, it's, it's being long-suffering with people, it's, it's enduring, but like this idea of enduring, it's like with all of their evil, like they spew it out at you, and it's like you sort of have to catch it, and instead of fighting back, you just have to like sit underneath it, right? You're catching 
the evil that they're throwing at you and you are patiently enduring it. That's the picture. How do you do this? I think the only way, the only way that you can do this is if at the heart of your existence, okay, at the core of your being is a belief, is a belief that the God of the world loved people so much that he was willing to enter the world and endure the evil of others, and he loved them through it. I think the only way that you can patiently endure the evil of others is if at the core of your being, you believe that the God who made the world, the God who is more offended by our sin than anybody else on earth, the God who made the world, the God who is the judge of the world, he entered into the world and he himself patiently endured evil because because he loves us enough to save us from it. Oh yeah, and it's not just that he came to endure evil in general, but this God who made the world entered into the world to endure your evil and mine. Right? The sins that we commit. Jesus came and had your name written on his hands. He had your name written on his chest as he died for the sins of the world. Like your sins were there because Jesus was willing to not just come up under the weight of your sins, but he was willing to be crucified on a cross and to suffer the punishment for your sins. It's only when you believe at the core of your being that that is the story of the world that you can find the strength to endure the evil of others. There is no other way, because at some point you're going to lash out, at some point you're going to get defensive, at some point you're going to get angry. The only thing that you can do with this evil is to turn to the cross and see your Savior who endured the evil for you. What happens? What happens when you do that? When you turn to Jesus, you realize he's not on the cross anymore. He is resurrected. And Jesus comes rushing to you and he says, I'll take that. He says, the evil that you are now being forced to endure, give it to me. Give it to me. And so literally, like there are times when we do this, there's times when I do this, where I literally say, Jesus, I don't know what to do. I don't know what the right thing to do is. I don't know what to say. I don't know how to respond. I don't know how to react. I can't take this. And Jesus says, you're right, you can't. It's not for you. Give it to me. You're not strong enough, but I am. And I say, Jesus, thank you. (laughs) And I literally say, Jesus, take this away from me. And in my mind's eye, I can see Jesus taking this burden off. And sometimes he just sets it at the foot of the cross. And then he turns back to me and he looks me in the eye and he says, Stephen, I love you. I love you. And you can't do this on your own, but guess what? You are not alone. 
I am with you. And you know what? I love the person that you are trying to show me to. So let's do this together. You can't give other people Jesus if you haven't experienced him. But once you have, once you have Jesus, once you have given your life to the servant of the Lord, you become his servant. Because there's, after all that he's done for me, how could I not give other people that same love? This is what he's saying. And so we need to be able to patiently endure evil, correcting opponents with gentleness. Correcting with gentleness. And so, man, in some ways, we can just be done, right? Do we need to hear any more? I mean, all of us, we just need to go to the cross and give Jesus. We'll do that at the end. We'll all give Jesus the evil that we are carrying around from other people. So we'll do that. But the text goes on, so I want to give you some more here because there's other things that are really important. Correcting with gentleness means correcting with the desire to see them know Jesus. Right? We're not trying to be right. We're not trying to convince them. We're not trying to convince other people. Our goal in responding to opposition is that they would know and love Jesus. So we correct them with gentleness. And what's awesome is that the word for correct... Um, it's the same word that's used in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. No, verse 24. Um, some of you know this verse really well. It says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. And the idea here is that we were, um, we were the law was like our guardian. It was actually our corrector is the same word. Right? The law was our corrector, and it doesn't correct us to make us feel guilty. It corrects us so that it can lead us to Christ. Okay? And so the same word is used in the same way that the law, sometimes when we read the commandments, we feel guilty because we fall short, but the purpose of the commandments is to bring you to Jesus so that you would feel forgiven, so that you would see that his strength is in you, that he has accepted you and forgiven you. Okay? And so in the same way, we want to correct other people in a way that leads them to Christ, that leads them to know him and to love him. And so friends, this is your responsibility. You give them Jesus. Right? You respond in a way that reflects both Jesus' truth and his demeanor, truth and grace. And after this, you've got to hand it over to God. After this, you love, you share, you correct, you endure, and then you hand it over and let God do what only God can do. Okay, and this is our last point. You give them Jesus and let God give them repentance. Like at verse 25. God may perhaps grant them repentance. God may perhaps grant them repentance. So what we see here, repentance, this is turning, right? Repentance is if you're thinking one way, you turn from that way of thinking and you embrace God's way of thinking, right? You embrace the truth. And so repentance, according to Paul here in this verse, this is a gift from God, right? God grants repentance. This is one of those verses that seems to touch on the questions about free will, Right? When someone becomes a Christian, is it because of what they do or is it because of what God does? 
right? If you're in a conflict, who's responsible for someone coming to the truth, right? Is it your responsibility or is it God's? Well, Paul says we need to give people Jesus and then let God give them repentance. And so repentance comes from God. I think some people have a problem with this because they want to protect people's free will, right? They want to give people a choice and they don't want to make God out to be the one who's responsible if they don't come. And I get that. That makes sense. God isn't responsible if people don't come. And yet, verses like these, they keep us from thinking that anyone can come to God without God first working in their life, right? Um, Charles Spurgeon said this once in the most wonderful way. He said, everyone is a Calvinist on their knees. You ever heard that phrase? Everyone is a Calvinist on their knees. What does that mean? Well, Calvinists, these are the people that make a big deal about predestination. And the Bible makes a big deal about predestination. Charles Spurgeon says everyone believes in predestination. Everyone believes in God's sovereignty. Everyone believes that repentance and faith are a gift from God when they're praying for people, right? Have you ever prayed for someone? Have you ever said, God, would you change this person's heart? Have you ever said, God, would you fix this thing that's broken in this person? Would you help them become a Christian? God, have you ever ever pled with God for someone else? then you're a Calvinist. (laughs) Then you're a Calvinist. You believe that there are things that God can do completely outside of that person. Right? I mean, yes, people choose God. Yes, they have to make an act of choice. They have to put their faith in Jesus. But all of us believe that God is involved in that process. All of us believe that. And these verses, this verse tells us that God grants repentance. Um, And so I think it's helpful to think about it that way. But also, I think this underscores, seeing that God grants repentance underscores our second point, okay? If God is the one who grants repentance, then we need to make sure we are giving people Jesus in the midst of the conflicts that we experience because Jesus is the God who grants repentance. And so think about it this way. If you give people Jesus then you are giving them the opportunity to have God grant them repentance. Does that make sense? If you treat them, if you give them both the truth and the demeanor, the truth and the grace, the love and the acceptance and the compassion and the understanding of Jesus, then you're enabling them to come face to face with God. And at that point, people are more likely are more likely to repent as they come face to face with God himself. It's so important to give people Jesus in your response because he's the one who can actually help them. He's the one who can change them. It's his presence and it's his character that grants repentance. This is what Romans 2.4 says. It says God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Right? It's the kindness of God. It's his openness. It's his willingness to forgive. It's his willingness to accept us just as we are. It's his willingness to, to adopt us into his family, to lavish the blessings of the gospel on us. That's his kindness, and that's what makes it safe for us to repent. Right? When you think you're going to get the whip, you do not open up. <laughs> you are not honest. But when you know that you will be accepted, loved, and forgiven, it makes it safe for you to admit who you are, what you've done. 
And so if God's kindness leads us to repentance, this is why verse 24 says we need to be kind to everyone because we then show God's kindness, which leads them to repentance. And then the last thing here is pretty startling. The last thing in these verses, um, God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Verse 26, they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So many people today believe that they want to reject God because they want to live in freedom. Right? So many people reject Jesus, reject Christianity because they want to be able to make decisions on their own. They want to be able to be free and not under the authority of a God who sees all, knows all, and speaks. Right? Well, this freedom, this freedom of autonomy, of not having an authority, it's actually not freedom at all. It's not. It's not freedom at all. Like, look what the verse says. That they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. There is someone who is prowling about the earth like a roaring lion trying to convince us that we don't need God. And he offers us everything. He offers us today the same thing that he offered to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. What did he tell them? Take the fruit and you'll be like God. You can decide for yourself what's right and what's wrong. Any kind of message like that coming today <laughs> from the culture that we live in? Right? And then he also says, you're not going to die if you do this. So you can have all the authority that you want with none of the consequences. There are people that, are, that have bought that lie hook, line, and sinker. There are people that I know, that you know. There are people living in San Diego and beyond. We have friends, we have family members, we have coworkers, we have colleagues, we have neighbors that are living ensnared by the devil and they think they're living in freedom. We need to understand this. This is why we need to pray. Because we need a power at work in their lives that's stronger than any other power that is strong enough to break through the snare of the devil. And so, friends, we need to approach these folks with, a, I mean, really with two things. One, with the face of Jesus. Right? We need to give them Jesus. But also, we need to approach them with a healthy and humble acknowledgement that if the truth were told about all of our lives, though we've been set free from the snare of the devil, we still go back. And that non-Christian people aren't the only ones living in the snare of the devil. Every single one of you, and me included, we all have areas of our lives where we are just as ensnared. Where we don't care about what God has to say. Where we would much rather God not speak, thank you very much, because we'd like to figure it out on our own. Or we'd like to be able to do what we want. And so let that give you a humility. So we want to give them Jesus, not because, hey, look at us, we're Jesus. <laughs> but we want to come to folks who are ensnared and say, look, I know what it's like to be ensnared. I have experienced a measure of freedom because of the gospel of Jesus. He has set me free, but he is setting me free. I'm in process, just like all of us are. And I'd like to share with you something that might set you free as well. This is the confidence, but also the humility 
that we want to go with. This is the confidence and the humility that will present the clearest picture to people of who Jesus is so that God would grant them repentance and they can come to know and to love the truth of the gospel. Let's pray together. Jesus, there is so much in these verses. I feel like we just scratched the surface, but I pray, I pray that you would draw near to us. Jesus, would you make it clear um, how we can give other people uh, you? Would you make it really clear to us, Jesus, something that we can do this week to begin to display you more fully in our lives? And in order to do that, Jesus, we all, we all need to see you. And I pray that right now, every single one of us, um, all of us have been weighed down by things that have been done to us by others. There is evil that has been done to us that we have been forced to carry around because we just don't know what else to do with it. Jesus, would you come to each one of us? And would you look each one of us in the eye and would you invite each one of us to give to you the burden that we're carrying? This evil that we've been made to endure, Jesus, would you take it from us? If you want to give Jesus something that you're carrying, would you in your heart just pray? Pray along with me. Say, Jesus, I have been carrying this thing, and you can name it. Name it in your heart. Tell Jesus the hurt that you've been carrying, the evil that you've been forced to endure. Tell Jesus what it is. Say, Jesus, would you take this from me? Would you carry this to the cross and leave it there? And then would you come back and fill me with your spirit? A spirit of love and gentleness. And help me, help me now to be able to respond like you to conflict and opposition in my life. Jesus, we thank you for taking on our sin. We thank you that first and foremost you've come for us and you save us before you send us out. We pray now that you would meet us as we respond to your word in the offering at the Lord's table so that you would fill us with your strength, so that we would leave here changed, transformed by the amazing news that you have endured our evil. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.